for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. We're in a series where we're looking at God is. We're looking at the character of God. And to set the scene for this morning, here is a a short clip um, from what is known as the Athanasian Creed. Let's take it away. Thank you, Sunil. And the faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet, there are not three eternals, but one eternal, as also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. (laughs) We can have the next slide. Thank you, Sunil. (laughs) If I asked you, could you repeat that back to me? Do you think you'll be able to do so? Yeah, some of it, maybe. Yeah, some of it. But there's an awful lot packed into that. In actual fact, that's just an abbreviated form of part of the Athanasian Creed, which is a, a, a famous statement about the faith that we hold as Christians. And uh, hopefully, it's my job this morning to try and unpack something of what it means for God to be self-sufficient. Every one of us is, is in some way dependent on someone and something. We are dependent people, but the God that we believe in is totally self-sufficient. In other words, he needs no one and he needs nothing. He is entirely complete in and of himself. So, why is it important? It is important because this is our faith. And to, do, to look at the self-sufficiency of God, we're going to need to look at the, the Trinity, God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because in the Trinity, we encounter the absolute self-sufficiency of God, and without it, we actually posit a need in God. So if God was just a solitary individual, there is a potential for need in Him. In other words, the need of love, the need of others the need of provision in some way or other. But the doctrine of the Trinity actually tells us that God is entirely self-sufficient. Now, how many, how many of us actually believe that God is happy? Oh, we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do because God is supremely happy in and of himself 
because he is totally self-sufficient. He is entirely existent and consistent in, in himself. He doesn't need the universe. He doesn't need planet Earth. He doesn't need you and I. He doesn't need anything. He wants for nothing. In fact, we were singing about that in our first hymn, that he doesn't want for anything. So this is the amazing God that we worship. And I trust and hope at the end of this morning you will have a a bigger conception of the beauty of God. And that's a good word to use, that the God we believe is absolutely beautiful in every way. How many people got up this morning and thought, wow, what a wonderful day? Well, we need some improvement there as well, don't we? Just take a look out the windows this morning. You know, we, we got up yesterday morning, we thought, what a beautiful day. We're going to go down to Folkestone and we're going to park up on the East Cliff and we're going to walk down to the Harbour Arm, walk out on the Harbour Arm and then we discovered they've created a new footpath across towards Sandgate. So we walked towards the Lees Cliff and then up and through the gardens and absolutely beautiful. We thoroughly enjoyed it. And do you know, one of the things we said was that, do you know, if we had paid a lot of money for this and gone somewhere else, we'd have been saying, wow, what a place to be. Isn't this a great place to be? But because it's on our doorstep, because it's Folkestone just down the road, it's like, oh, well, it's not quite the same, is it? But actually, the beauty, the views, the gardens, the the air, everything was so different. But I want to tell you that as beautiful as that day is, as beautiful as that scenery is, as beautiful as it may be to go to the tropics and enjoy the sunshine and and everything there, the, the beauty of the scenery, God is far, far more beautiful. Yeah? God is far, far more beautiful. Because these things that we see are are things that he has created and they are a reflection of this wonderful glory that is our God, of this self-sufficient one. And so when we look at the context of the Bible, uh, we find that as we look at Scripture that there were gods in those days of different spheres of life. So they had gods for all sorts of departments of their lives. They had uh, also gods over different areas. There were local gods. And there were the gods of the nations. And uh, the gods of the nations needed uh, the people to to serve them. And and they believed that people were their servants. They they didn't want to do things themselves. They were kind of lazy. We don't want to provide our own food, etc. We need people to provide food for us. And this is the context of the biblical world. And and so they, they, they were kind of fed up with doing things for themselves, and so they, they got people to do things for them. The gods had a, a vested interest in, in caring for them and blessing for them. So there was a kind of a mutuality of need between them. Keep your God happy, and he would keep you happy. Now I want to tell you the God of the Bible is completely different to that. The gods also had differing roles, and they were arranged hierarchically. And I want to tell you again, the God of the Bible is completely different to that. We could unpack a whole lot of these, and I'm going to throw them out there for you. Uh, And so when we look at the Bible, when we look at the God who's the Bible's all about, we discover a a totally different God. And a a God who is distinct from the, the gods of the various nations, the gods of the cities, the gods of the towns, the gods of the villages, the god of the sun, and the god of the moon, and the, the god of the harvest, and all that kind of thing. We discover 
that God reveals himself to Abraham as a unique God who transcends their un- the understanding of any God that has ever been known. And as you go through the scripture, you, you discover this unfolding revelation of this amazing God, this totally unique God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Today, there are false ideas about God. You know, some people think of God as Father Time. Some people think of what Dawkins has to say. Then there's Islam and there's Hinduism. Then there's false ideas around the church. So you have the JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses, you have Mormons, you have Unitarians who all in some way or other would say, well, we believe in the same God that you do believe in. But when you look at what they teach, you have to say, no, they don't. And then there are false ideas within the church itself. So you have people who call themselves Oneness Pentecostals. There are, there, there are all sorts of books that are written. When you read them, in actual fact, that they're false ideas and they're written with some good intentions. And so it's important for us to understand God and to understand his self-sufficiency because, you know, our own worship, our own walk, our own witness, our, our own, uh, the whole aspect of our lives is directly con- connected to the image that we have of God. And so our knowledge of God is the the most important thing about your life journey and my life journey. Because we will image what we believe. If you believe that God is a a despot, you will image a despot. A tyrant who just is out to control people and things and places and, and so on. But again, when we look at Scripture, we discover that this God that we believe in is, is, is one God. And he is God in three persons. That Though he's one, somehow he's three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And not only that, but each person is fully God. God is, God is therefore completely sufficient in himself as, as the Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you've got a Bible with you and you'd like to turn to Acts chapter 17. So in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, we read, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. And he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. And he had a a big debate with some folks there. And and you read on there, he, he also had a debate with some of the Epicureans, the Stoic philosophers, and he told them about Jesus and his resurrection. And they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? And others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. And then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Hey, what's new? <laughs> You know, we live in a world where people discuss all the latest ideas about all sorts of things. You know, you can have a God that just suits you today. You can make your own God and you can say, well, that's, if that works for you, that's okay. But if it doesn't work for me, I've got my own God and I worship on my own way. Well, Paul is challenging that. And so Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. As follows Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. Uh, For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines and one of your altars and it had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. And this God whom you worship without knowing is the one 
I am telling you about. He's the one who made the world and everything in it. And since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. Wow, this was shocking revelation because they were used to their local gods. They were used to their, their gods who were limited in power. Uh, these, uh, and, 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 and Paul comes along and says, I'm telling you about a God who's far bigger than any you've ever known. A God who's utterly amazing, who is the God of all the earth and who has no need in and of himself. You, you serve your gods because you believe he has needs. This God I'm telling you about has no needs at all. Wow. I mean, that, that's, that's something, isn't it? Just to let that sink in. So as we, we think about this God who is totally self-sufficient, let's, let's put some things out the way, shall we? And we'll move on to this, this. Let's put these out the way. You know, you probably are familiar with analogies that are used. So there's, there's different things like clover and apples and eggs and, and water. Uh, although I do remember at one occasion... Somebody caught me out because uh, I mentioned water, and they said, well, actually, water, if you get it at the right temperature, it can be all, th- all, all three things at once. And, okay, and this was a scientist, so I thought, well, okay, we'll park that one, shall we? But analogies, they, they kind of have a, an idea with them, but they're not really that helpful when it comes to think about this all-sufficient God who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you think of numbers as well, again, you know, one plus one plus one equals... Three, and yet one times one times one equals? Okay, so let's not worry about numbers, shall we? They, they lead us down the wrong track. And, and you know, when we think of persons as well, we, we read from where we are. We, we think of our, our own personality, and we think particularly of the, the individual personality of, the, the, of you and I in the West, the I, the capital I, and And that's not really where the word person begins because actually the word person originated with theologians where they were trying to understand God and it was in the context of relationships. So a person is only a person if they're related to somebody else. So I'm a person because you are persons. We are people. But take that away and who am I and who are you, etc. So even thinking about persons, if we start there and we try and think about God, we're in trouble Because we look at God and say, well, okay, there's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit. So we've got three individuals, three gods, haven't we? Which leads us on to three mistaken ideas. Okay, we'll quickly run through these. Three mistaken ideas. Probably the most common one is known as modalism, where God is seen as one being, but he appears in different ways. So he might appear as the Father, he might appear as the Son, he might appear as the Holy Spirit, but he's not all of them together. So he appears in different ways or, or different modes. It's a common misunderstanding that we have uh, and, and you'll find within the church. It's a bit like saying that I'm a father and a son and a husband, but I'm still one individual person. That's three different modes, a father, a son, and a husband. So many Christians are actually what you call practicing modalists because they, 
they kind of think that God turned up one way in the Old Testament, and then he turned up a new way between the Testaments, if you like, the beginning of the New Testament in Jesus, and then he turned up another way in, in, in the church age in the Holy Spirit, so far the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is to, to break the nature of Scripture and what it means for God to be totally self-sufficient. And it also begs the question, if, if God appears in different ways, how do I really know who he is and what he might appear like tomorrow? Can I really know God? Another one is subordinationism. And it acknowledges that there is a Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but it denies their equality. So it sees them as lesser in rank, either within the same Godhead or lesser in being, so that the Son is not actually uh, as divine as the Father, and the Holy Spirit is very often reduced to a force. Again, that, that takes something away from our understanding of the God that we have revealed to us in the Bible. And so, you know, people like the Jehovah's Witnesses would fall into this, uh, the Mormons and the Christadelphians. And then we come to the third one, where we kind of like, where do we go with this? Okay, so we've got three gods. So we separate them out completely. Um, believing in the three, but losing sight of the oneness of God. So, where do we go to discover the truth? Where do we go to, 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 to iron this out, to, to discover this self-sufficient God, this God who is complete in every way? And we have to go back to the revelation of Scripture itself. We have to go back to Scripture and, and begin to think about the way Scripture communicates this God. So it starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there we have God as a singular creating the heavens and the earth. And a little bit later, it says, let us make man in our image. And, and, and for a moment, you kind of stop there and you say, hang on a minute. I thought God was an individual. And now he's saying, let us make man in our image. So suddenly we get a hint of something a little bit more about God than we got what we got in the first verse. Let us make man in our image. And, and God is not talking to the angels, as some commentaries would say. God is not using the royal we, as I've also seen it said. <laughs> you know, we. And really it's the one. Uh, but no, the, let us make man in our image. And as you, you go on through the unfolding nature of Scripture, you find this dynamic revelation of God. You, so often, you see, so often we think life is about us, when actually this book is about God and how he's made himself known to us. And that changes an awful lot about the way I think and feel and worship and behave as a Christian. If you've got your Bible open, if you'd like to turn to John chapter 1. So, all through the Old Testament, there are, there are hints in different ways, and we haven't got time to go into them, that this God is more than just, as it were, a solitary being. He's a God in community. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when you step over into the Gospels, this is where it really kind of breaks open in a big, big way. So, John chapter 1. So, can you imagine for a moment... John was a typical Jew and he, and he howled, the Lord our God is one. He is one Lord. And yet at the back of that there was a hint that maybe there was something else to it. Think of Psalm 110. You know, the Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And so here we are. John has encountered Jesus. And encountering Jesus, he's encountered more than another man. He's met many men in his time, but encountering Jesus, he's he's met somebody who stands out about every other man he has ever met. And this is what John has to write in his Gospel. He says, in the beginning was the Word, writing of Jesus. In the beginning, the Word already existed, and the Word was with God. In other words, that means that this this one he is talking about, this, this Jesus who he's talking about, who is helping Jews and Greeks to understand, this Jesus was face to face with God. God the Father. He was face to face in in, in complete unity with him. The word was with God and he says the word was God. I mean that was a dramatic statement to make that this man, this man he'd walked with and he'd learnt from and he'd watched do all sorts of things, heal sick people, raise the dead, etc., This man, this man, this man who was born in in Bethlehem was God in flesh. This was was shocking. This was astounding revelation. So further down it says, the word became human, verse 14, and made his home among us and he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So he says, when we looked at Jesus, we saw somebody who stood out from all the other men on the face of planet Earth. We, We looked at him and we saw the glory of the Father. And glory was a big word for for the people of Israel because that belonged to God. That was a God word. We saw the glory of the Father. And then in verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the unique one who is himself God, who is near to the Father's heart, or as some versions in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed God to us. So he's somehow expanding something about Jesus here that this, this Jesus who's on, on earth walking in a real human body is nevertheless at the same time God. And he's in the bosom of the Father. He has that close a relationship to him. It's staggering. You go on to 8 chapter 16. Chapter 8 and verse 16. There's a whole stack of verses that we we could pull out in different ways. But verse 16. Uh, Verse 15, you judge me by by human standards, but I don't judge anyone. And if if I did, my judgment would be correct in every, every, every respect because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. So he's saying that somehow this God who is from everlasting yet to everlasting, who's made himself flesh, somehow there's another person in this Godhead who is right there with him. And then as you come to the end of the chapter, verse 58, he says something that was absolutely shocking. He says this, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Did you hear that? Before Abraham was, so now they're tracking back in their imaginations, they they know the story of Israel, they go back hundreds and thousands of years, and in their minds they, they think of Abraham. 
And how God appeared to Abraham and, and suddenly here is Jesus and he's saying, guys, girls, before Abraham was, I am. And he used that God word as well. I am. Which would have uh, aligned him distinctly with the God who had made himself known to Moses. Staggering, staggering truths. And then if you go over to chapter 10 and verse 38, chapter 10, verse 38, he says that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. Then over to chapter 14 and verses 16, to 18, 16 and 18. 14, 16 and 18. Listen to this. He suddenly says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter or advocate. Now that didn't mean another one of a different type. It meant another one of exactly the same kind. So suddenly Jesus is, suddenly we've had this revelation that Jesus is God as much as they understood in the Old Testament that God was God. Suddenly Jesus in physical form is God. And yet God is still in heaven and Jesus prays to his Father is in heaven. But he is God. Before Abraham was, I am. And now he says, when I go away, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send one just like myself, another of the same. Of the same kind to be with you. And who is this? The Holy Spirit. And so Holy Spirit would come and he would be God present to the people after Jesus had gone. So I won't leave you as orphans. Staggering verses indeed. And then if you go over to chapter 17 and verse 5. Jesus' prayer. An amazing prayer. This is truly the Lord's Prayer, chapter 17, where he says, Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Oh, suddenly there's another aspect in here. He's speaking of this glory again. A glory that was a shared experience way back in eternity past, but before ever the world was brought into being. Wow. I mean, these these are staggering truths. And if you're struggling to get your head around it, don't be surprised. Because this comes by revelation. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, help us to to understand these truths about you, about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us to understand what it means to see your self-sufficiency in this way. Theologians struggled. They wrestled with this. How do we convey this truth to to this world in which we live, which has all sorts of ideas about gods, local gods, uh, gods over different areas, over different things, four different things. How do we convey this truth? And they came up with a particular word, uh, which is perichoresis. My favorite word, uh, but it's a good one to learn. Say it with me, perichoresis. Come on, perichoresis. It's a good word to learn. You know, start speaking in tongues with that, couldn't you? (laughs) Okay, say it once more. Perichoresis. It's a wonderful, wonderful word because this is a word that theologians came up with as they wrestled. How do we, against all the 
all the kind of the wrong ideas going on. How do we understand God in his self-sufficiency? And the, the, the word is kind of um, broken up in this kind of way. Peri means to be around and choria means to dance. And it's like dancers where there's this, this constant movement of overture and acceptance. It's not the, it's not the charismatic individual dance or the, the beat bop down the, the local whatever. You know, this is a, that, that kind of dance where there is the, the interplay between people, where there is such a unity, a giving and a taking and a sharing and an enjoyment of it together. Each divine person entertaining the others at the the very centre of his being, drawing life from one another and and from who they are in relation to one another. So in in this dance, there is no isolation. There is no insulation. There is no secretiveness. There is no fear of being transparent to one another. That should tell us something about how we are to image God. Shouldn't it? Because I think that's amazing. No isolation. The devil wants to isolate. No insulation. No secretiveness. No fear of being transparent to one another. And we are called to image this God who is a tri-personal God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they came up with this word to express the the ongoing intimate union, the the mutual indwelling, the self-giving that existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that none of them was isolated or detached from the actions of the others, but there was a mutual containing and enveloping of realities. Wow. I mean, it just makes me want to stop and worship because this is our God. He is an amazing God. And so it presents for us a a God who's not an abstraction. He's not impersonal. He's not static. He's not dull. He's not boring. But listen, he is one who is pulsating with life. Did you hear that? Turn to the person next to you and say, did you know God is pulsating with life? Yeah? Yeah? I can't say I had this idea when I grew up in a Christian home. For me, God was some distant entity who was kind of sovereign and who created and he didn't exactly pulse with life. But I am glad that I now understand he does. That through this relationship of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, there's a God who is entirely existent, consistent, in himself, totally self-sufficient and pulsates with life. And because that is the case, he is, he is full of energy and he is full of beauty. He is full of glory. And God is, hear it, entirely happy in himself. That should have an amen. Come on. God is entirely happy in himself. Wow. Come with me to John chapter... Uh, no, we'll we go to Luke's Gospel. Let's go to Luke's Gospel, shall we? Luke's Gospel and chapter 3. Verse 21. A few more verses. 3.21. On the day when the crowds were being baptised, Jesus himself was baptised. And as he... Jesus was praying, the heavens were opened. 
And the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Wow. So you've got the Trinity there again. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So each of the divine persons entertains the others at the center of his being. They draw life from one another and are what they are because of their relationship to one another. You can see that in marriages. You can see that uh, modeled in families. So they were in one another without any confusion. Time is running on. And I want to go to... Yeah, just before I get there. Someone said this. He said, God is not some faceless, all-powerful abstraction. God is Father, Son, and Spirit, existing in a passionate and joyous fellowship. The Trinity is not three highly committed religious types sitting around some room in heaven. The Trinity is a circle of shared life. And the life shared is full. It's not empty. It's abounding and rich and beautiful. It's not lonely and sad and boring. That's the kind of God I can love and I can serve. What a powerful image of God that is. How many of you have heard of Susanna Wesley? Susanna Wesley, yeah? A few of us, some of us. Susanna Wesley, she was the mother of Charles and John. And probably most of us are aware of John and Charles Wesley, the famous Methodists who went all over the UK, went to, uh, across the water to the United States, preaching the gospel, and saw many people saved. And, and uh, one of the things that came out of that was the Methodist church and, and uh, this great movement that sprung up and, and just to help shepherd these new believers and help them in their newfound faith. Uh, and, of course, Charles Wesley wrote about 6,000 hymns uh, some great hymns that are full of wonderful, wonderful theology. But you know, we think of those men, but they owe an awful lot to their mother. And it's been said that Susanna Wesley is really the mother of Methodism. So, you know, you, you might be thinking, well, I'm not theologian, this doesn't matter to me. Yes, it does. It matters to every one of us. And Susanna Wesley was by no means a, a theologian, and she used to engage with some some pretty strong sort of uh, theological concepts. But she had a vision of God. She grasped the sufficiency of God in his Trinitarian being. And this is what she writes in one of her private devotionals. She says this, Consider the infinite boundless goodness of the ever-blessed Trinity. Adore the stupendous majesty Mystery of divine love. That God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost should all concur in the work of man's redemption. What pure goodness could move or excite God who is perfect, essential blessedness? That cannot possibly receive any accession of perfection or happiness from his creatures. What I say but love, but goodness, but infinite, incomprehensible love and goodness could move him to provide such a remedy for the fatal lapse of his sinful, unworthy creatures. You can go and look that up on the internet if you like, because it's worth meditating on. But she knew the nature of God and his self-sufficiency, 
She knew his glory as that in no way could he be added to, in no way could he be subtracted from. And she said this, He is the great God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. And he created not angels and men because he wanted them, for being is being itself. And as such must necessarily be infinitely happy in the glorious perfections of his nature from everlasting to everlasting. As he didn't create, so neither did he redeem because he needed us. But he loved us because he loved us. And he would have mercy on us because he would have mercy. And he would have compassion because he would have compassion. So when we think about the Trinity, we encounter the absolute self-sufficiency of God, his absolute completeness. Without it, we posit a need in God. And this is the God that we worship. Wow. What a God. There's a lot of... We've travelled through a lot there. And it's probably making some minds just kind of like, whoa. It's going over my head. But it's worth thinking about. Because if we posit a need in God, we have a problem. And that's about us then and how much we satisfy that need. But God is completely satisfied in himself. And as we draw to a close in thinking about this, before God created the world then, he was eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because he was eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before God created the world, he was eternally love. Love didn't begin when he created the world. Love didn't begin when he created humanity. Love didn't begin when he sent Jesus. He was already love, love, love. And before God created the world, he was the lover in the drama of his own Trinitarian relationships of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Entirely happy and entirely content in that community of the three. And so, before God created the world, he was entirely sufficient in himself. Wow. Would you stand? Such a God... Maybe it's stretch your vision, just a little bit of God. And I, really, really, I don't want us to do anything because I just want us to, to see something this morning. Just this amazing God, young people, that we believe in. A God who is love and loves you. A God, brothers and sisters, who calls us into the same fellowship through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that Christ in us is indeed the hope of glory. (laughs) It's beautiful, beautiful truth. It's truth that will impact our lives in different ways as we begin to reflect on him and say, Lord, help me to image you to the world. 
The world has got bad press when it comes to God. And we need to give it good press by imaging what we understand of God. And so, Holy Spirit, we thank you for this glorious truth, this wonderful revelation. And my, is it big. My, does it stretch our minds? Does it stretch our hearts? Because, Lord, you are bigger than us anyway, as we were singing earlier on. Our God is a great big God. You're bigger than this and you're bigger than that and and you're bigger than the other. God, help us to get that revelation of you as entirely sufficient within yourself. You didn't create this world because you needed it. You didn't make us because you needed it. It was out of your love that you created and you made us and when we messed up, came to us in Jesus in love again to to draw us back into that relationship so that, God, I don't always get this, but it says there, Jesus said it, your son said it, that you would come and reside in us and yet you would still be in heaven. Lord, what wonderful truths these are. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you for Scripture. We thank you for all that it portrays. And I pray, Lord, that from the youngest to the oldest, we might grow in this wonderful faith and discover this dance of life that exists within the Godhead, this joyful communion that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this God who is loving himself, who is full of joy in and of himself, but has desired to share it with us for his glory and praise. Amen.